Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. Lord, we thank you that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray this morning that it would search us, that it would pierce our hearts, that it would reveal what is within us, and that by your spirit you would be transforming us, that you would change us to live more and more as your people, that everything in our lives would be submitted to the realities of Christ and his kingdom. Lord, I pray for myself that you would help me to speak your word faithfully this morning. I pray for each of us that our hearts would respond in joy and thanksgiving and humble submission to our Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes things come along and change our lives in fairly radical ways. Of course, one thing that everyone seems to be talking about at the moment is the coronavirus and its restrictions. I was flicking through the paper yesterday and there was one commentator who was saying that society was going to have to be born again. It seemed a little bit over the top. But there is a sense in which we feel that everything around us is kind of changing. Our time will tell how deep those changes are, how lasting they are, Uh, But there's no mistaking that things are very different this morning than they were a year ago. And all of us have been forced to change in light of those realities. Uh, We're forced to change the things we do and what we are going about doing um, because of the new realities that have come upon us. And of course, there are also more positive things that transform our lives. Uh, There's a couple at Newtown Baptist who a couple of weeks ago uh, welcomed their first uh, child into this world. And you know that their life is never going to be the same after that. A whole new reality has come into their lives. Um, I caught up with the, the father of this new baby uh, this week, and you know, the first thing I noticed is his eyes looked really, really tired. Uh, he was not getting as much sleep as he's used to, and I'm sure uh, some of you would be well aware of what that's like. Um, but more seriously, this couple have become a mother and a father, with all the joys, with all the responsibilities that entails. And every day of their lives from now on is going to be shaped by that new reality. Now, this man is never going to get up and go about his work the way he used to when he didn't have a kid. Well, in this morning's passage, Jesus is speaking again about a new reality, something that fundamentally changed the world in which we live and which needs to fundamentally transform our lives as well. And it's something far deeper than simply COVID restrictions or even the birth of a child. Uh, The very foundations of our lives are redefined by the coming of Jesus into this world, that God has come to save his people. This changes what it means for us to relate to God. It changes what it means to have joys, to have sorrows. It changes our hopes and our ambitions. Uh, Absolutely everything has to be changed by the reality that Jesus has come. And the challenge for us is to rightly respond to those new realities and not to keep living as if we're still in the old order, as if things are still the way they used to be, but to let him reshape the very foundations of our lives and reshape every part of our lives as a result of that. As we turn to the details of this morning's passage, we find uh, this huge claim about the new reality that has come in Jesus. And it comes in the context of what might initially seem like a pretty minor incident. Uh, There's a question about fasting. Uh, You find the basic question there in verse 14. Uh, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Our fasting was a practice that had been part of Jewish life from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, it was a way for people to humble themselves before God and to earnestly cry out for his help. The law had commanded a national fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, 
On that day, people were earnestly seeking God's forgiveness for their sins. And fasting was a way they showed uh, their humility before God and, and the petition they were bringing before him. And while that's the only regular fast commanded in the Old Testament, uh, there are plenty of other situations where we find people fasting. Now, sometimes you find people fasting as an expression of their repentance. Now, sometimes they're crying out for deliverance from their enemies. Now, sometimes they're asking for God's help to do what they know they should do, but they don't have power to do on their own. Now, sometimes they're pleading for God's judgment to be removed, or they're uh, weeping over deep grief. Now, there are lots of different expressions of fasting in the Old Testament, and I'm sure there are helpful nuances in each of them, but if we were to sum up the picture of fasting that we get in the Old Testament... Our fasting was a way that people humbled themselves before God, recognising that something in this world is wrong, recognising that they don't have the power to fix it, and calling out to God for his sovereign intervention. Well, by the time of Jesus, our fasting had changed a little bit. Um, Fasting seems to have become more pronounced within Judaism, and it was no longer just an occasional thing on one day a year or at particular times where there were certain crises happening. Our pious Jews would fast twice a week, our Mondays and Thursdays. And this was supposed to be a sign of their devotion to God and also of their longing for God to bring about the things that he had promised. And so this is the context where we find Jesus and his disciples. Our fasting had been done since the very beginning of the nation and everyone considered it the mark of a truly pious person. Our religious people fasted. And so here was Jesus, this religious figure, and everyone would have expected him to get on board, him to get all of his disciples fasting just like any other religious person did. But he doesn't. And so the question was bound to come up, well, what is different about Jesus and his disciples? And in our passage this morning, it's uh, the disciples of John who come and ask that question. Uh, John was one of the people who... uh, John was the one who was calling people to repentance uh, back on the Jordan, uh, baptising them in the Jordan. And John had been preparing the way for Jesus. You might remember Jesus going down to John and being baptised by him. And John had basically said that all of his ministry was about Jesus and pointing towards Jesus. Uh, So when John's disciples come to Jesus here, this is not a hostile interrogation like the Pharisees trying to trip Jesus up or catch him out. Uh, But even John's disciples just seem confused by what Jesus is doing. Uh, Why don't Jesus' disciples fast like everyone else who wanted to be religious? And so as we read on, then we come to Jesus' answer. And what's incredible about Jesus' answer is how little he actually says about fasting. Uh, Jesus doesn't start to unpack the details of the history of fasting and how it's changed through the centuries and what the right way to fast is. Uh, Jesus' answer is not so much about what fasting is as about who he is. Uh, Look at verse 15. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Now, the reason Jesus' disciples didn't fast is simply that Jesus was with them. And so it was not a time to mourn, it was a time to rejoice. Now, the image Jesus uses here is pretty straightforward. You know, imagine that someone turned up to a wedding and they didn't smile and they just wailed and moaned and lamented all the things that were wrong in the world. Uh, maybe if there'd been some particular tragedy in their life, you'd, you'd overlook that. But under ordinary circumstances, you'd say that's just not appropriate behaviour. 
That's not what you do at a wedding. Uh, in fact, it's not even just out of place. It would be offensive to the couple. You know, how can you think, our, think so little of our wedding that you're keeping on mourning and moaning? Uh, does this mean nothing to you? And so Jesus' basic point here is fairly simple, that there is a time for sorrow and for humble fasting, and there is a time for joyous celebration, and we need to know which time is which. But the incredible thing here is that the definition of which time is which hinges on the presence or absence of Jesus. He is the bridegroom who has come, and he is the one who will be taken away. And that is why fasting needed to stop but would resume again. It was all about Jesus. Now, this is a pretty astounding claim. You know, imagine if you had your prayer meeting tonight and uh, someone was sharing that, you know, we should spend some time lamenting over the things that are wrong in this world. And, you know, someone was to stand up and say, look, guys, don't lament. It's okay, I'm here. You'd look at them a bit strange. Maybe you'd, you know, call for some um, health authorities to get some mental health for them. Um, the idea that someone could say, don't lament because I'm here, it's just outst- it's astounding. Um, but that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, in our passage, in all seriousness, is saying his disciples are, not, are right not to fast because he is with them. Uh, so why could Jesus say such a thing? Well, even just glancing over the last couple of chapters of Matthew, we, beget, we begin to get an indication of the things Jesus was doing. Jesus was the one who had a power and authority to heal all kinds of sickness and disease. Jesus was the one who had authority to subdue the chaos of nature. We see him stilling a storm with a word. Jesus was the one who had authority over evil, banishing demons. And most incredibly, he was the one with the authority to forgive sins. He was the one who could take away the sin that stood opposed us and reconcile us into relationship with God. People fast when something is wrong. People fast when they're earnestly crying out for help. But when the disciples see Jesus and all that he's doing, they can see it's time for celebration. Help has actually come. And when Jesus uses the image of the bridegroom here, it's probably also supposed to pick up on uh, language in the Old Testament where God himself is the bridegroom who comes for his people. Uh, Listen, for instance, to what God says in Hosea chapter 2. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I'll make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. This is at the heart of all God's promises for his people. Our God would come and take them to be his own. He would come as their bridegroom, as their husband. Now, that had been the hope held out by the prophets. Now, that had been the hope that lay behind so much true fasting. And Jesus comes and he says, I am here. The bridegroom has arrived. Don't fast, celebrate. All that is wrong and distorted in this world, Jesus is showing that he is the answer to that. He is the one who has come to restore all things. 
And the joy of that moment should eclipse everything else. If we're still still fasting and mourning when we see the reality of Jesus coming, it would show that we haven't understood just what that means, the complete transformation that is coming through our Lord. Well, we've seen then, firstly, the, the joyous reality that has made fasting inappropriate. Jesus came in the flesh, came to save his people as he promised, and all else was eclipsed by his presence. And it will be nice to end there. But Jesus says something else about fasting. Our fasting was not appropriate because he had come, but it would happen again when he was taken away. Our verse 15, Jesus answered, How can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Before we get too carried away proclaiming that everything is right and we don't need to mourn, Jesus says fasting will come back. And this helps us to put his coming into perspective. Uh, Was his coming the great restoration of all things? Well, yes and no. Yes, it was God coming to his people. Yes, Jesus showed that he had power over all that afflicts us and over the sin under which we stood condemned. More than that, Jesus went to the cross to completely free us from the clutches of sin. The coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago was the momentous appearance of God to save and redeem his people. But was that the end? No. Our death still plagues us. Pain and grief and frustration, they remain a part of our existence. And most tellingly of all, we don't see Christ face to face. The bridegroom came, but he was taken before the wedding was over. And so Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken, the disciples will fast. They will still have reasons for sorrow. They will still have urgent petitions for help. They will be still crying out for God to do what they cannot as they wait for the return of their Lord. As Christians, we fast because we still live in a world in need of Christ's salvation. And we ourselves urgently need his grace in so many ways as we navigate life in this fallen world. Well, as you look at the timeline then, you have uh, before Jesus came, people fasted. But then when Jesus came, fasting stopped because of the joyous reality of what had dawned in his coming and his presence with his people. But then Jesus was taken and fasting resumed because people still wait for his return. And it might seem like we've just gone back to the old reality. Fasting stopped for a couple of years while Jesus was here in the flesh, but then everything goes back to normal once he ascends to heaven. Uh, But I don't think that's the case here at all. Uh, In the context here, Jesus is not talking about a brief exception to this practice of fasting. He's talking about a whole new reality. And we'll see that as we come to verses 16 and 17. Something has fundamentally changed. And so even though the disciples will resume some form of fasting once Jesus is taken, it will not be fasting as they used to know it. It will be something completely different, something that is changed by the fact that Jesus has come. If I could use an analogy, again, from the realm of marriage, I might think of a similar idea where things can seemingly go back to normal, but in fact they're not normal at all. 
Uh, when a man proposes to his girlfriend and she says yes, what happens? Well, maybe they celebrate, maybe they go break the news to the families, but then he goes back to his house and she goes back to hers. And it's the same as every other date they've been on. At the end, he goes back to his house and she goes back to hers. And you could say, well, nothing really happened, did it? It's still the way it always was. You know, maybe she's got a nice ring or something, but everything seems the same. And yet we know that it's not the same. Something has completely transformed. Uh, the couple is now engaged, husband and wife-to-be. And as we think about fasting, in some sense, things are going to go back to look similar to what they used to look like. Uh, the disciples would start fasting again. But that doesn't mean that things were going back to the way that they were. Uh, the disciples will never again fast like they used to. Now, sure, their fast would still involve not eating and devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, sure, their fast would wait up, humble themselves before God, recognising their need of his sovereign help and their own powerlessness to help themselves. But the fasting of the disciples would not be that of those who are waiting for God's salvation and for God's saviour to appear. It would be the fasting of those who now know their saviour, who know his salvation and who long for his return. Their fasting is defined by the bridegroom whom they have met, but who has now been taken away. So we find that the new realities of this kingdom, the new realities of their own relationship with Jesus, will completely transform what it means to fast. They fast because they know him and because they long for him. And of course these realities still define us as Christians today. As Christians we fast in a new way, a way which recognises that God's purposes have been definitively put into effect through Christ. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended. Our salvation is perfectly secured in him. We fast as those who know our Lord. We fast as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. But we fast because we're still waiting for the fullness of God's salvation to appear. We're still waiting for Christ to return and set everything right. We fast longing for God's kingdom to be expressed more and more and longing for his help as we face life in a world where Christ is absent. I think Paul really helpfully sums up our situation in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. As Christians, we do know Jesus, and that changes everything. By faith we see him, we rejoice in his glory, our lives are inexpressibly changed by the relationship we now have with Christ. But even as we see Jesus, we know that we don't see him the way we long to. As we see him, as we know him, we long to know him more, to see him more clearly. It leaves us more acutely aware of what is lacking and longing for the day when Christ will appear and we will see him face to face. And so we find as Christians we long in light of both uh, we fast in light of both of these realities, uh, both the reality that we know Christ and the reality that we long for him. And we fast because we want to see his salvation more fully expressed, even as it has already begun to be expressed in our lives. 
Well, so far then we've seen in this morning's passage how Jesus changed fasting. When he first arrived in the flesh, the celebration of his presence made fasting inappropriate. But now that he has ascended, we fast in a completely new way. In the final two verses of our passage, Jesus tells two short parables, which again point us to the transformation that he is bringing to this world. Both parables make the same point. Something new can't simply be plugged on to something old. Jesus' kingdom can't be tacked on to the way that life had been before. Everything must change. Jesus starts with the example of fabric in verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Now, if you think that the old was basically okay, but just need a little repair, and that maybe Jesus coming in his kingdom can just fix up a little bit here and there. Jesus says, think again. The new reality Jesus is bringing simply won't fit with the old ways. And then we have the example of the wine and the wineskins in verse 17. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Again, we find the combination of the old and the new leads to disaster. In this case, the wineskins were made out of leather, and as you poured the wine in, uh, the wine would start fermenting, the pressure would build, but the leather has a bit of stretch to it. Uh, The wineskin could expand to accommodate uh, the fermentation. But there was a limit to that. You know, a year or two later, you take the same wineskin, it's already stretched, its strength is beginning to fade. If you pour a whole new batch of grape juice in there, the process will start again. Uh, The grape juice will start fermenting, the pressure will start building, but the leather can't stretch much further and its its strength is not what it used to be. And you're simply going to end up with a broken bag and a wet cellar floor. The point of both of these parables is simple. You can't just mix the old and the new. You can't expect your old life just needs a touch-up and that this kingdom Jesus is bringing, well... It might help here or there where I have a few troubles. You can't decide that your old life can just be filled up with the new thing Jesus is bringing. The old and the new are incompatible. If you want the new, everything needs to be new. New wine needs new wineskins. We've already looked at the implications of this for fasting. Fasting needed to be completely changed by the fact that Jesus had come. But I think Jesus' point is broader than just fasting. The mistake John's disciples was making wasn't in their understanding of fasting. It was in their understanding of Jesus, their failure to recognise the depth of the transformation Jesus was bringing. They thought they could keep carrying on the way religious life had been for decades and centuries and millennia even through the past. They thought they could keep living their same basic lives and that Jesus would just help them to do that but Jesus says no he's brought something completely new and this needs to change every part of our lives not just the way we fast but the way we live the way we express ourselves the things we desire the things we think are good and bad our hopes our ambitions our fears the things we rejoice over the things we mourn all of it is changed because Jesus has come 
And it's worth pausing to ask for a second, has it actually changed in your life? If you think of what Jesus has done, have you just added a few bits on here and there? You know, still basically living my same life, but I come to church, I've stopped swearing, go to a Bible study group, still pursuing my career, still dealing the same in my relationships. Or have you let Jesus transform things from the bottom up? Have you let him completely revolutionise your life to be in accordance with his kingdom? If you think about when you go to work in the morning, is that just part of the structure of the old you? Is that just part of the structure of the world in which you live in? Or have you actually spent time to prayerfully consider how Jesus reshapes your attitudes, your ambitions, your goals in regard to work, and then how he reshapes all of your behaviour flowing out of that? For those who are parents, maybe you think that being a Christian parent is about a prayer before mealtimes and maybe a, a Bible account before bedtime. But have you let the gospel completely transform the way you think about parenting? Does it shape your desires for your children? Does it shape what you encourage them into and what you discourage them from? Does it shape what you talk with them about, how you spend your time with them? Now, of course, that's not saying that you know, parents should always speak Bible verses and nothing but Bible verses to their kids. But is the whole purpose and direction of your parenting shaped by the gospel? Is it grounded on the grace that Christ has shown you and your desire that your children would grow up into that grace? And when we consider our finances, our leisure time, our relationships, is Jesus the one who shapes the very foundation? Or does he seem like a bit of an add-on? The structure's there and you're just kind of adding an annex to it. You know, when we think about our conceptions of right and wrong, uh, do we let the world tell us what we should get on board with? You know, the world will tell us the righteous cause and then we'll just jump on the bandwagon. Or is our idea of what is good and true flowing from our knowledge of Jesus and from the revelation of his word? I think it's all too easy to just live our lives as we have always lived them and not realise that Jesus has come to change everything. And sometimes as we grapple with a new situation, we need to really take a step back. And we need to go back to basics, back to square one. And maybe you'd find it helpful this week to just start with the simple premise. Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen, he's ascended, he's coming again. Blank piece of paper, write that down, and then just ask, now what? What would a life look like that is built around those realities? I don't assume that it looks basically the same as it already is. You know, sometimes I've been I'm sharing the gospel with people and I've heard, heard people saying to people, look, you know, you can become a Christian and it's not going to change that much. You, know, you don't have to leave your family, you don't have to leave your work, you don't have to change this and that, and you know, maybe you won't have to change your job. But that's the wrong premise to start with. If you become a Christian, everything is going to be different. And so you have to start with that whole new foundation. Uh, Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, he's risen, he's coming again. And then ask, well, what should I be doing? Uh, what work should I be doing? Uh, how do I treat my family? How do I relate to my wife and my kids? How do I spend my leisure time? Uh, all of that has to be built from the bottom up. Uh, we can't simply change it at the basic level, you know, add a few things on here and there. A whole new reality needs to change from the very heart outwards.
And so this morning, this passage tells us that Jesus has come to bring a whole new reality. It tells us that Jesus has come to transform this world. Our God has come to save and redeem his people. And it calls us to let him transform us, uh, to change the way we live, the way we respond to him, and to rejoice in that thing, uh, to rejoice that Jesus has come, and in that joy, to let him have complete control over our lives. Uh, so let's uh, pray together to that end. Father, we do thank you that Christ has come. Lord, that what the prophets longed so desperately for has been revealed. Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we do thank you that in his cross we have perfect salvation, that our sin has been nailed to the cross, that we bear it no more. Lord, we thank you that in his resurrection we know that we have life guaranteed eternally. Lord, we thank you that we know him by his spirit who dwells in us. Father, we thank you that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Father, we rejoice in these realities, but even as we do so, we are aware that our lives so often do not reflect them. Father, so often we have continued to live the way we've always lived. So we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your grace to change us. Lord, help us to see where our lives are out of step with the gospel. Help us to see where we have not fully recognised the significance of the coming of Christ. And Lord, by your spirit, give us hearts which humbly repent and which come to you for more and more of your transforming work. Lord, we pray that we would live completely new lives as your new people and that you would be glorified through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.